Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 135 interviews in this podcast series, all of which you can enjoy on aarecoveryinterviews.com and all podcast apps. On this week's show, Shamin M. shares a story which will resonate with those in their first few years of sobriety. It will also ring familiar with those who drank for many years before alcoholism took control of their lives. In Shamin's case, drinking was part of her life for over 30 years, from the time she was 18 until she joined AA a few years ago. A social drinker for many years, she functioned in her job and home life with few of the consequences that might have indicated a problem with alcohol long before she arrived at the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. By the time Shamin noticed that her mostly innocuous drinking had morphed into serious alcohol abuse, she was loath to believe herself to be an alcoholic, but she knew that she had to stop or at least moderate her consumption of booze. Thinking she could manage it herself, Shamin implemented a variety of planning, rulemaking, and self-control measures that had worked so well in other aspects of her life. Unsurprisingly, she sought an online solution through various forums, smartphone apps, and interactive programs that promised the help she so desperately needed. None of them worked. Finding herself with diminishing options, Shimin sought out AA through the readily available Zoom meetings that had become the mainstay of her program. Through Zoom, she has actively participated in the core elements of AA, including step work with a sponsor, chairing and leading meetings, and online fellowship. She also added an in-person meeting at a local AA club to her meeting schedule, sufficient to maintain a well-rounded program. I believe you will find much of interest and meaning in Shemin's story. So sit back and please enjoy the next hour of this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Shemin M. My name's Shemin. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Shemin. Thanks so much for, for joining me this evening on AA Recovery Interviews, the podcast where AA members from around the world share their experience, strength, and hope with each other through the medium of a readily accessible podcast. And I'm so pleased that you said yes, that you would do it. Thank you so much for asking me, Howard. I'm so honored. Well, I've had the opportunity now to be in a number of meetings with you over the past couple years now. And I feel like we've gotten to know each other because we see each other on the Zoom meeting. It's one of only two Zoom meetings left, left in my repertoire, but it's one I go to. It's the one that's on Saturday that you and I both frequent. And before we start, what's your sobriety date? March 28th, 2022. I was curious because when we first met, of course, you were on Zoom, whether you have ever tried AA before this time around. No. I had never tried AA before. Um, I was a little, I think the thing that kept me away for as long as it did was mm -hmm. the idea that you had to say, like it's, you know, some point kind of early on, you're going to need to say, I'm an alcoholic. And the word alcoholic scared me to death. So I had tried moderation. I had tried several of these online, you know, everything from full sobriety to moderation forums, um, trying to kind of do it on my own. And none of those things worked to keep me from obsessing about alcohol and to keep me at a level of, of actual drinking that I wanted to be at. I get that. Um, the fact that you went to other approaches before AA, shall I assume that AA was going to be the last thing you tried as long as nothing else worked? Or it did, did it just work out that you didn't try AA first? No, I kind of felt like AA was like Medicare. It was like the payer of last resort. So uh, I'm curious, what do these programs promise? And what were you what were you looking for that was appealing to you in these other non-AA programs? One that I did 
was uh, an online, you could choose 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, a year. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I liked about that program kind of when I was at that point was it was, it felt very approachable. You know, they weren't asking you to stay sober for the rest of your life. They were asking you to make a baby step commitment. Mm -hmm. The the stakes were not very high. Right. And Mm -hmm. I did like the accessibility of it. You know, they'll feed you like little things in your, you know, on your phone as a text message in the morning, like, Hey, go in. It's a great day. Go in and journal, talk about your commitment for the day. Um, I liked that. The problem was it was the thing that that started out as a benefit because it was a baby step program. All I was doing was counting days in my streak. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't another aspect of it like AA has, which is let's get to the bottom of it. So that was kind of option one. Um, Just it was really more about counting days in your streak and just kind of keeping up the motivation, which is not sustainable, I think, in the long term. So kind of like AA without the program. <laughs> okay, I get yeah. it. Just yes. counting days. Okay. Sure. Just kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. The next program that I tried was a, it had a couple of new layers in it. So it had, you know, there were online meetings that you could go to. You could kind of mm-hmm. choose if it was, you know, co-ed or, you know, this topic or that topic. You know, you could kind of sign in when you want to. And I liked that. I liked the community piece of it. They had a wider spectrum, though, than the first option of, you know, we don't really care if you want to be sober or if you just want to scale back. We're here for all of it. And that was great for some people. But when you get into those community rooms, Mm -hmm. there are people who are like, well, I I drank again yesterday. And... um, you know, there are people who might be trying to moderate. And so we're talking about how the moderation is going. But for somebody who wants and needs kind of like full stop, I don't want to drink anymore. Having community members talk about how they're moderating wasn't really helping me. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece to to that is. You know, what I one of the things that I really like about AA is we kind of always say we're going to confine our discussion to the topic of alcoholism. Yeah. And that's what the centerpiece of every meeting and every conversation is. So, you know, whether you're in a step meeting or in a sharing meeting or a leader speaker meeting, whatever. Um, In in some of these other groups, you might be talking about um, a, a variety of different topics. And so. I kind of I kind of think about it like like this. It was kind of like, okay, if you decide you want to go to church, like most people are going to go to church mm. for a specific purpose. But let's pretend that there was a church that also had a nutritionist and also had a gym over in the corner and all, you know, you could go there to work out or you could go there to talk to a nutritionist or you could go there to buy clothes. Like in that context, like the original reason that you might go to church kind of gets like it's one of many things that you can accomplish there. It's, it's used to publicize and promote other products and programs and... Well, not necessarily. It's not like the organization, you know, the, the people behind the meetings. It's not like they're teeing up like, okay, today we're going to talk about this or today we're going to talk about that. But because there is no agreement on the scope of a conversation the scope of the conversation could go a lot of different places and not necessarily talking about sobriety or moderation, if you will. It's kind of like all these external things that people have going on in their lives. And then like, if I could just figure out why I'm this way, then, you know, all these other things would work out in my life, you know? So it was a little bit unfocused for me. And so when I got to AA, it made me very thankful for the structure, for the clarity of purpose, for the clarity of intent. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the clarity of purpose and the clarity of intent of AA is exactly the thing that enables such a diverse group of folks to get together and to become each other's community and to 
and to become each other's friend. That is a great revelation. Yeah, I don't know of another forum where you would choose to walk into community with people who weren't more or less like you. Right. So in AA, we are people who would normally not mix. And what you were talking about there, the conversations open up to a lot of controversy, which is why the fact that AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes, is the reason why we as a group of people who would normally not mix can get together in a room and talk about what for most of us is the most important thing that they do in their lives, and that is staying sober, because we know, those of us who have the experience of having of being alcoholics, but having been out there as active alcoholics, we know that if we don't stay sober, we get nothing. We get nothing out of life, uh, especially when we acknowledge that we really have a problem. So what's really interesting about what you're talking about is there, several years ago, five, ten years ago, this would not have been possible, though AA has always had a, a network of people who talk by phone and other things and have meetings by phone or uh, that sort of thing throughout the years. But the the idea of having meetings on Zoom, I know a lot of people who, by the time they were a year or two in, they had never been to a live meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. What was your experience? Yeah, uh, I definitely got sober on Zoom. Uh, my mm-hmm. first in-person meeting was probably about six months in. And, and I had people in my, in my herd you know, I've, I've got probably about, eh, I don't know, I've probably got about 20 people in my phone now. But like, you know, at the time my sponsor was like, get 10 people in your phone. Like those are the people that you want surrounding you. Those are the people that you want to be your go-to folks. And, and I had a, I had a few of those folks kind of yeah. say, why don't you try an in-person meeting? And they would say, they would talk about like, they're like the meeting before the meeting. I'm like, what's that? They're like, oh, and then there's the meeting after the meeting. I'm like, what's that? You know? <laughs> and all of these were, you know, things that you experience in an in-person setting that you don't necessarily on Zoom because there's a start time and an end time, you know. And um, so it is to this day, the only in-person meeting that I go to and the only in-person meeting that I've been to, it's, a, it's at our clubhouse in in Denver. There's Clubhouse here. So, Yeah, so I've been to Denver quite a number of times. I've got a couple of sisters who live out in Colorado Springs, so I've been out to Colorado a lot over the years. been to some very good meetings in Denver, and Colorado Springs has some really terrific groups, that, one of which, when my father passed away in Colorado uh, while visiting my, my uh, sister and brother-in-law, um, I went to a meeting before I even went to the house once I got to the airport, I went to a meeting and uh, told them what, why I was there. And the whole group just kind of really surrounded yeah. me with a lot of love and support. And it meant all the difference in yeah. the world to me getting through that event without the craziness that's, that's normally involved. Yeah, so w- what you're saying, I think, is, is and what your sponsor says is important. AA is a face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, knee-to-knee type program. What's interesting is when they launched the book, a lot of the impetus behind that was that people who could not get to meetings or people who could not necessarily do anything else could at least read the book and follow what it said. But I don't think Bill Wilson ever meant for it to be a remote program, uh, but people getting together. So what kind of difference do you notice between the live meetings and the, the Zoom meetings that you still attend? There's so many things that are different because that the Zoom meetings that I go to tend to be meetings with um, people who have a lot of sobriety, a lot of tenure. And there's a lot, like there's a greater population of the group that comes regularly, you know, each week or several, you know, several times a month. With the meeting that I go to in person, I think... And I think in part because it's at the clubhouse. And so that's meeting number one for so many people in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, you do have a, like, there's a smaller percentage of people who are regulars. And there's a lot more newcomers that come in and out of that meeting. And I really like having both. 
I like the balance of, of that. So that's from a constituency, I guess, perspective. Um, differences. Well, you know, I mean, when I got sober the first six months, like I only went to Zoom. I didn't know any different. And so it was very normal for me. And I have a job that when we all went on lockdown and went remote, you know, I have an, I'm a knowledge worker. And so I was very, I, I have become over the last few years, very used to connecting with people on Zoom. I do think that it's important to be on camera to the, to your point about it being an eyeball to eyeball meeting, because you're not going to be need any. Um, and you know, I mean, there's, there's sometimes there's really good reasons for you to not be on camera. So I'm not dogging on anybody that goes off camera, but I think as a general rule to like have that sense of community with folks like be on camera, it's, it's okay. Be in your sweatpants, have bedhead, doesn't matter. Like that's the whole point is to just be right. fully you. And maybe in that sense where, and, and, and this is part of my text and coming out, like, would I go to a meeting in person if I hadn't done my hair or put on mascara or put on some decent clothes? I don't know, but I'll show up to a zoom meeting. Like, <laughs> any any condition and there's a freedom in that there's a freedom in that and I, you know and there's i think there's like a, a vulnerability in that too yeah there is and i think that that's an important distinction to make also what you said about the convenience factor there's also the time factor con- to consider uh most of the meetings that i go to i live in a town that's uh a little bit south, it's really a suburb of Houston, but most of the meetings I go to are in Houston. And it's not uncommon for me to drive 20 to 30 minutes, sometimes even 40 minutes to get to a meeting. And I've been doing that for the better part of 35 years. And of course, when COVID started, it just amazed me how much more time I had not having to drive and put up with Houston traffic to get to a midday meeting or an evening meeting or that sort of thing. So I think the convenience factor for people who might think that AA has intruded too much on their lives could at least (laughs) take comfort in knowing that you can go to an AA meeting without a huge investment of anything beyond the hour-long time frame of the meeting. Have you considered going to more than just the one live meeting a week? Or I'm assuming the clubhouse has other meetings and other other days at the same time. What are your thoughts on, on that? (laughs) <laughs> well, um, you know, I, in all honesty, I'm just kind of like riffing on what you just said about the convenience factor. At the end of the day, my higher power is the one who led me to AA, who said it's time and enabled me to take that first step. That said, I'm kind of stubborn. And I was already kind of dealing with the, I don't want to say I'm an alcoholic, uh, you know, all this stuff. I don't know that I would have stuck with it with as little fight if, if I hadn't had Zoom. Yeah. If I had to get in my car and go somewhere and, you know, like you said, the commute time and all the parking and all that kind of stuff, that was a barrier to staying with AA and to going to meetings as frequently as I did, especially in those early days, I don't know that I would have done it if it hadn't been so abundantly easy. And the nice thing about Zoom, too, is that the whole world has opened up. You know, like I'm on a meeting. My Saturday morning meeting originated in L.A. You know, never would have gone to that meeting. And so, like, I'm not confined to just meetings in Denver, just meetings that are within a 10-mile radius of my house. Like, I've got the whole world. Mm-hmm. I just think that, that like, the, the ability to connect with people in your own home, you know, when you get off of work, you don't have to go anywhere. You can just log into a meeting or whatever. I, I really... I think that Zoom has actually been a huge enabler of my sobriety. Oh yeah. Now I am really glad that I do go to the to the meeting once a week and in, in person. And I'm not opposed to going to more of them. I am in a little bit of a routine now where like 
I've got my meetings. I'm very consistent. I go to all of them every week. It's very rare that I don't yeah. show up to one of those. And so I think that for me, it, it makes me feel like, okay, this is a commitment that I can manage. I've got both options. I've got a variety of different types of meetings. Mm-hmm. And I'm also not just relying on the meetings that I go to as part of my program. So it's a big time and energy investment, and I feel like I'm doing it in the right places. I get it. And I think it's great that people have had the opportunity to be able to connect with AA in a way that they may not have been able to do in person. Uh, It opened up a lot of hearts and minds to the program. Well, I came in when live meetings were the only meetings. So to me, it, it it was a switch. And quite frankly, a number of my closer friends with longer term sobriety really resisted Zoom in the beginning. They felt like that was, it was some, some kind of, uh, mm. it wasn't AA, you know, and then over time what happened, and we're talking about a period of, uh, you know, one and a half, two years, uh, some of those people started showing up because they realized that if they didn't, yeah. you know, some AA is better than no AA. And I think some of them realized that, but the first opportunity I had to go back, I went back. Um, you know, the good thing about the commitment that you were talking about is that you can be committed in different ways at different stages of sobriety and at different times within your life. When I had little kids uh, 30 years ago, I would go to uh, fewer meetings because of the obligations of child care that I had along mm-hmm. with my wife. So, so life circumstances will sometimes dictate those things. But the important thing is that you found AA when you needed to find it. And I guess that would lead me to the next question. Looking back at your at your earlier life, let's yeah. say even your childhood or family of origin, what sort of things were present in your life that might have predicted that one day down the road you'd be an Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, let's see. The big ones that are coming to mind are I have a very people-pleasing personality. Um, I am also very perfectionistic mm-hmm. and very hard on myself. And I was also raised in an environment where, you know, I think if I put myself in my parents' shoes, they just wanted me to have a better life than they had. They wanted my life to be easier than theirs was. They wanted my life to be better than theirs was. And they saw that I had some gifts and talents that if I used them well would benefit me. There was a lot of expectation that I achieve. Um, now, do you have siblings? No, I'm an only. Okay, so you were the sole focus of the yeah. attention and everything else at home. Does is there any in your family tree itself? Is there any alcoholism or other things that might qualify somebody for a twelve step program? Even going back generations. Yeah, I think there is at the grandparent level. Mm-hmm. Um, and possibly generations before that, at least on one side of my family tree. I'm not aware of on the other side of my family tree of alcoholism being in the family. And neither of my parents were big drinkers. Um, Southern Baptists, you know, no alcohol in the house for a I mean, as I got older, they kind of eased up on on that. But like when I, whenever I was younger, that was still very much a part of like, oh, no, there's no, there's no alcohol in this house. Nobody drinks here, you know, so. And that's the story of a lot of people who get raised uh, in that way that uh, mm-hmm. alcohol is just really not an issue because it's so seldom seen or participated in by the family of origin. When you were a kid, if somebody said to you, let's say eight to ten years old, somebody said to you, that person is an alcoholic, what would pop, what would have popped into your mind about what an alcoholic is? That's a great question. I think immediately I think of somebody who's very disheveled, maybe doesn't have a job, maybe living outside, hasn't bathed in several days, like can't, can't keep it together, you know, alienated by, like, I mean, I kind of go to this like, like pretty harsh case scenario well, as an eight or 10 year old kid, it sounds like you would. Yeah. That must have been something when you found that whenever it was you were able to go into AA, that you were probably none of those things, but still an alcoholic. I drank pr- 
pretty much every day for 32 years. When did you first start? Oh, I mean, I probably had like a sip of wine or something like that, like in my early, let's just say the, you know, 14, 15, 16 age. But I went to my first drinking party. <laughs> so I grew up in a dry county. Uh-huh. For those of you all who don't know what a dry county is, like you can't you can't buy alcohol in the in the county limits. And so, you know, in in rural North Texas, what that means is you just drive to the next county over, go to, you know, go to the gas station, pick up your beer and drink it on the <laughs> way back. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. <laughs> that's that's Texas all over. Yeah. But we would have uh, field parties. And so, you know, just like some, I don't even know whose property it was, just like we would all agree, like go out to place number three, bring your alcohol and we'd all drink in a field, you know. And that was um, what people did like every weekend in my hometown. And the first time Mm -hmm. I went to a field party was, I was probably 18. It was like spring semester, my senior year in high school. So I wasn't a drinker all the way through high school, all the way through living with my parents. But when I got to college, it was game on. Hmm. So you, you really began about the same time I did. I, I had had sips and different things uh, over, over my life. I didn't really start drinking, drinking until I went off to, uh, until I went off to college. Uh, tell me about the first drinking that you did and how it affected you and what you either liked or disliked about it. I think that I have always been a little bit of a snob when it comes to alcohol. So, you know, when I went to college, you know, the first few parties that you go to or frat parties, you know, it's always a kegger and, you know, it's crappy beer or some sort of punch that who knows what's in it, like a million different things or it's gross. And I was never super tempted by that. Um, I kind of fancied myself like this humanities major philosophy you know let's get together with a few friends and have some wine and you know talk about all the world's problems and figure it all out kind of a bohemian type of arrangement (laughs) huh (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, I I remember being in and this was and that was kind of the scene that I preferred where it was like you know I would go with my friends to study at a coffee shop and then there was this little this little place I went to the University of Texas you know in the early 90s when I was there there was this darling little French cafe called Les Amis and it was it was rustic it was kind of beat up you Mm -hmm. know old wooden tables and things like this dimly lit and you could order like a carafe of wine that was, you know, like whatever, not a name brand at all, um, for like four dollars. Hmm. And I remember like being there one night with a couple of my friends, and the topic of conversation was, "Aren't we all just brains in a vat?" And the the you know that <laughs> like this brains in a vat. This whole nonsense conversation about like what's really, you know, what what is really life all about um, was kind of centered around us, you know, being very fancy and being in this fake French cafe and drinking our fake wine. And, you know, all of this it was very pretentious. And I I, I loved it. <laughs> oh, that's great. What a, what a great way to experiment with the type of persona you want to have when you're drinking. Yeah. When you drank, did you get drunk? Did you black out? What was the feeling associated with being drunk? I, I definitely have stories of being blackout drunk. Absolutely, I do. By and large, this is not the type of alcoholic that I am Mm -hmm. uh i tended to do like you know three two three glasses of wine a day um sometimes more like when i was younger you know kind of trying to figure out what that sweet spot was um but i really liked getting to just kind of a point where the conversation could become really deep Mm -hmm. um where friends could be get closer. Um, when I was younger, there was a little bit of like inhibition lowering, making me feel more confident about myself for sure. But, uh, 
I've, I've, I don't really have a lot of memories of being like a rowdy drunk or a particularly belligerent drunk or anything like that, but I had a buzz and certainly probably didn't need to be driving as much as I did whenever I was drinking, but it was very much, you know, I think that we're onto something as we're talking about this, like this persona of the type of person that I wanted to be, which was like smart and deep thinker mm-hmm. and, you know, knowledgeable about wine. Um, Sociable and, and in society kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I get that. Mm-hmm. Alcohol makes that a lot easier to do, at least in our minds, uh, whether we actually accomplish that while we're drinking. I don't know that I was ever invited back to places after I spent a night drinking there. So you're always in search of some new place and some new adventures when, when we're drinking. But you, So you drank for a period until you came into AA. You drank, you said, for 32 years. The presumption that that I have is that somewhere along the way, you became a functional alcoholic, meaning you stepped over some line along the way. Is that a fair way to to describe what happened for you? Absolutely. When we're drinking, if we can't predict our behavior. I mean, these are the things that you might know you're an alcoholic if. Yeah. I don't want to presume that you were an alcoholic the whole time because I've interviewed people who didn't start drinking until they were in their mid-60s. Up until that point, they had just been normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill drinkers. And somewhere along the way, they stepped mm-hmm. over the imaginary line. I guess what I'm asking is, when, when did your imaginary line show up for you? When did you go from being a social drinker to being an alcoholic? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know that I can actually pinpoint that. I, th- You know, because I started drinking every day and I didn't always get drunk. I actually didn't get drunk very often. Mm. You know, I would get a little buzz and then that would be, that would be the day. But I, I do remember drinking very consistently day over day. So to your question about when I wasn't drinking, did I think about it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that is for me, the biggest indicator of my alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I think I've been thinking for at least a couple of decades, sometime early afternoon, I wonder what I'm going to have to drink tonight. How many hours until that gets to happen? You know, I, I created a lot of rules for myself and, you know, it's kind of, as I I was talking about earlier, like I like structure, I like order. And so like, well, that's the best way to do is just create some rules and then you won't be an alcoholic (laughs) because you never drink before you never drink before five and you don't have more than three drinks a night or, you know, whatever. I like always had these like limits. As long as I didn't violate those limits, then I wasn't an alcoholic. I was managing it just fine. And I could, of course I could stop at any time, but I spent a lot of energy adhering to the rules yeah it was hard to adhere to the rules and for a normie i don't think it's like that for normies i think they're like you know i can take it or leave it they're like oh do i want a glass of wine with dinner uh yeah sure or oh maybe not i don't feel like it tonight like there was never and i would say this for the past 20 years anyway there was never going to a restaurant where there was a wine list where i would be like ah look at it no i don't think i want it i'll just have a sprite Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. no that never Never happened happened. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -mm. so so the obsession um the alcoholic thinking was the thing and kind of is still the thing that like i feel like is like that is that is the biggest indicator of my alcoholism sure for me because i was i was very good at playing by the rules until the pandemic. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. 
While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book. 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. I know a guy who drank for years and years before he finally got sober three or four years ago. But in the very beginning, when, when he was coming to meetings, he would say, I don't have a drinking problem. I have a scheduling problem. You know, I, I, I don't know how to, I'm not very good at scheduling times when I can get drunk without consequences, or I can get drunk without the wife beating me up, or I can get drunk without getting fired from my job. And it sounds to me like somebody who's able to manage the way you were managing, obviously, if you, if it was, if it was bothering you, you were having to do all those things and you must have known deep down inside that you had a problem that was, that might emerge if you didn't handle it in that way. Yeah. 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 That's true. That's true. I think deep down, I thought these rules and my ability to abide by them are the only thing that's keeping me away from saying I'm an alcoholic. And it was such a, it was all, it was all a lie anyway. It might've been the thing that kept you alive until today. Cause a lot of people who don't have yeah. even those self-set rules will go off the yeah. deep end very quickly if given the opportunity. So it sounds to me like maybe your rules and the structure of your drinking in a lot of ways kind of made you like a functional alcoholic. You could, you could function and do what you needed to do as long as you adhered to the schedule and the structure and the, whatever self-knowledge, I guess, you had at that point about drinking. During the time that you were drinking, what kind of consequences did you have from your drinking on occasion or frequently? Or did you have none? I mean, some people don't have any. Really lucky in the sense that I don't have a lot of external or visible consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest ones, I I was much more promiscuous. I was much more prone to one night stands, things that I wouldn't have probably been excited about doing if I um, had been sober. Mm-hmm. That was probably the biggest one i i have memories of kind of like getting into arguments with people and having to kind of like pull out of that and apologize the next day i had a i had a boyfriend and we went to his sister's wedding together and got into a huge fight Hmm. um after which we broke up and i will regret forever uh ruining his experience of his sister's wedding that you know there's nothing you can do about that yeah thank god you'll have the opportunity to clean off your side of the street with regard to that particular situation the thing about eighth and ninth steps they sometimes don't need to be done all at once sometimes it takes a little time to figure out what to do what to say when to do it when to say it and that kind of thing so uh sounds like it's some that's the kind of guidance you're getting from your sponsor with regard to that huh yeah Um, I didn't have external consequences. The consequences to me internally in my mind were awful. So, and this is something that I, I really think that sobriety has just been so amazing. Um, I have suffered from depression since I was 11 years old Mm -hmm. and, you know, you've kind of got like the chemical aspects of depression, like you know, you're, you're sick, mm-hmm. you know, there is an illness that's inside your brain and then coupled with the environmental things like being a people pleaser, being perfectionistic, a lot of pressure to perform, a lot of pressure to achieve, you know, all those things. And so you can imagine that like somebody who's managing alcoholism that she's not admitted to by putting even more rules around herself is just like, it's like that scene. Remember the, the original, I think it's the original Star Wars. It's Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and this giant trash company. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, that's what it felt like to be me hmm. for so many years. There's a couple of decisions. One is the decision that you're like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to drink. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the A word. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say I'm an alcoholic 
I'm not going to drink. I'm going to go down this path and I'm going to renew that commitment every day. And I'm going to, you know, call on my higher power to help me get through that every day. When you make that macro decision, in so many ways, it eliminates all of these micro decisions about like, am I going to drink today? Is this, is this the, you know, I said I was only going to drink three days a week. Is this one of those days or do I have to wait till the next? Like all that's gone, right? You're just not going to drink anymore. So the micro decisions are gone. And all of the rules that I was putting around myself, that weight was lifted once I made the decision to get sober Hmm. and to take that step. The other piece was working the steps of the program Mm -hmm. and kind of understanding that the, you know, this, the secret that they don't tell you, which is like, Oh, this isn't just about not drinking. Mm -hmm. This is about your, this is about living your, the life that you were always meant to lead. The, the freedom in my mind that has started to happen and that I have seen particularly over this last year Mm -hmm. has been just incredible. Like I can't even tell you all the pressure that I felt I was under to be good enough to perform, to be the best one at this, to be, you know, whatever, whatever superlative you want. That was what I thought I needed to be in any given situation. That's a powerful realization, isn't it, Shaman? Yeah. Just to be able to let that go and say my higher power has got it. It's okay. It really does. It shines a lot of light. What you were saying about um, the depression, and and you and I have talked about this offline Mm -hmm. because I've suffered with clinical depression. It, It occurred to me somewhere along the way, and it wasn't until after I'd gotten sober that I might have dealt with the depression much earlier than I did, but I was drinking and and smoking marijuana all the time. So, you know, I would leave dealing with my depression until the next time I was depressed, and then I would, which was usually the next day. And then the alcohol didn't make that any better. I'm curious whether you noticed the same thing with regard to your depression. Yes. And one of the things that I did not want to admit to, and I've had more than one psychiatrist tell me, well, you know, if you're drinking, you're not doing yourself any favors if you're on meds and you've got depression. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. There's lots of people, you know, I would, I would find some way to rationalize it because I did not want to give up the drink. Yeah. And Oh my God, if I had given up the drink ages ago, kind of to your point, like if I had known then what I know now about what it can feel like, yeah, would I not have signed up for it, you know, to be, to live a sober life like ages and ages ago? I often wonder too, and you know, to your point, I often wonder, had I not been drinking or using drugs for a total of 12 years, because I started at 18, I finished at almost 31. But there was a lot in that time, and that was also pivotal times of having to make certain decisions about jobs, about relationships, and everything else. And certainly, there's nothing to be gained by reminiscing about what could have been. But with specific regard to the uh, antidepressants, I never really admitted to the psychiatrist or the other people that I was drinking or smoking as much as I really was. And had some of them pulled me aside and said, the reason why you're still depressed, even while you're taking Prozac or Zoloft, is because of the drinking. And the drinking is not doing your brain any good while you're trying to do it some good with these antidepressants. So I, I just I just find it interesting. The more people I talk to about it, the more I realize we've probably done some irreparable damage to our brains anyway with the drinking and the drugs. So it's almost like whatever starting line we thought we had with the meds has actually gotten pushed back quite a ways. Yeah. 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 But for me, you know, I, I had two conversations with a doctor that I can think about mm-hmm. very clearly one psychiatrist really laid off like she did not she knew that I drank every day she did not harp on that too much Hmm. and at the time when I started seeing her I mean I think it's always really hard for these docs to like figure out how to approach that conversation I wasn't ready to give it up 
And so her approach was to just, you know, not make a big deal out of it. I did have one psychiatrist. I was new to his practice. And so like probably by the second time I saw him, he flat out said, I think that you uh, are consuming too much alcohol, particularly on top of your depression. And I think that you need to go to a meeting. And I was furious. How many years ago was that? 2016. So six years before you actually came into AA, you had someone recommend it to you based on what he saw. And I fired him, didn't I? Well, yeah. I mean, what do you need him for? You yeah, know, if obviously. Yeah. Giving, if he's giving you that kind of advice, what the heck do you need him for? <laughs> I get that. You know, the, Why doesn't he stay on top? Yeah. And, and, you know, what's crazy about that is that all of that is about the patient self-reporting on how much they drink. So, you know, unless a psychiatrist or a therapist can see you in your cups or can visit you in the hospital after yeah. you have alcohol poisoning or, or after you've had a car crash, everything is self-reported by the person who's probably doing the best they can to hide it, even from the people who can help them most. I feel like I only lied a little bit. I underreported, but I feel I'm like, like my psychiatrist knew that I drank every day, but I think that I was also minimizing. So coming up on 2022 then, during those years, were you keeping jobs? Were you able to drive without getting pulled over for drinking? What, what kind of things were going on during those years that were affected by alcohol? Miraculously, um, I was able to keep jobs. I never got pulled over for drinking. Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate because there were certainly enough times when I made poor decisions. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the pandemic that I started day drinking while at work. Mm. This is while you were home? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you were working from home then. And that was kind of the point where, like, I, I started breaking my, my rules. Uh -huh. Or I started redefining the rules, you know. So it used to mean for years and years, it was like, don't drink before the end of the work day, you know, and the end of the work day, 4.35, whatever, until you're done with your work. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it was like, well, it's four o'clock. The only thing I really need to do is just kind of work on a spreadsheet. I don't have any more meetings, you know, I'll just pour a glass of wine or whatever. And, you know, you know how this, this goes. Yeah. Like that, that time just kind of got getting moved mm. back and back and back. And like, I mean, I would be on Zoom meetings and I would have a glass of wine sitting just behind my computer. Yeah. And I would put it far enough away so that I wouldn't unconsciously pick it up. Yeah. You know, and, and drink on a Zoom call. But I was playing with fire and I was getting really worried about it in those months leading up to my first aid. So in addition to being a daily drinker, you became a much heavier drinker on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I would say late into my drinking days, not long before I joined AA, um, I was drinking a bottle of wine a day. Hmm. I was probably going through between four and six bottles of wine a week. Hmm. So I wouldn't necessarily drink a bottle of wine every day, but it was, you know, I had moved the goalposts enough times where I'm like, I see where this is going and it's not going to a good place. Hmm. And I don't want to, I mean, we all have a bottom, like we all bottom out, but like, I don't want to get a DUI before I make a change. Yeah, I get that. You mentioned earlier about, and we were talking about Zoom versus live meetings and so forth. Your first meeting or your first exposure to AA, that was a Zoom meeting? Yep. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what did you hear in that meeting that made you want to tune in again? Well, that's a great question. I just liked the people. I liked seeing people from a broad range of generations. It was so uh, so interesting because, you know, you, you, there's a lot of people on A that, that will talk about how much they love AA. I love this program. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And I, I tend to approach those kinds of, when I hear things like that, I tend to approach that with suspicion. And, and so I would hear people, you know, very early days. And I think even in this first meeting, just, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a cult. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet 
I did feel like people were very welcoming to me, you know, because it's Zoom, you can, you know, there's always the the little chats that are going on offline, you know, in the, in the side chat. Mm-hmm. And so people were direct messaging me and saying, we're so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Here's my phone number. Please come back, you know. And that just felt really welcoming. Mm. And I was like, okay, this could be kind of nice because most of my friends that I hang around are drinkers who, you know, they're normies who can kind of, you know, manage Mm. it. And so it's hard for me to kind of talk about this with them. But here's a whole group of people that are like, oh, yeah, we get it. Come on back, you know. And that felt really nice. Yeah. And it was low stakes. You know, I'm sitting here on my couch, you know. Yeah. You can tune in and tune out as you want, too. And yeah. if you don't like yeah. a particular meeting, you can just switch to another meeting. And, and, and just so, go to a different one. Yeah, I get that. Well, that, it's fortunate okay. that you found that kind of group when you when you first started. Because I, I did have the opportunity to tune into some uh, Zoom meetings that were not being run the way AA meetings need to be run that were going kind of out into left field where there was a lot of crosstalk mm-hmm. and people were playing mm-hmm. at doing AA, but they there was no real structure to it. What did you think of the steps of the program, 12 steps when you first read them? Uh, in your rules uh, structure type of person, so I'm particularly yeah. interested in what you thought about them. I think, well, I'll say this, like what I knew of 12-step programs before coming into AA Mm -hmm. and then definitely into early days, I thought the 12 steps were kind of like something that you just kind of do over a couple of days. Like, that, you know, they're pretty easy and you just kind of like do them, check them off and then, you know, whatever. Um, I didn't realize how much work is involved and how intense they they can be and kind of like that's that's a commitment on its own. But I did like the structure. I'll bet. I did like that all of these people, you know, all over the world are saying, did those exact time, did those exact 12? Yep. Did those exact 12, you know, and there's not been, there's, there hasn't been any like, well, let's relook at the 12 steps and just make sure like, is there, you know, in the vein of continuous improvement, (laughs) do we want to make, do we want to make any changes to this? You know, like. My whole world at work is always continuous improvement this and continuous improvement that. And I do like the sameness of the steps. Even, and I'll make a commentary on the big book too. So I tend to be a a bit of a feminist. And when I first read the big book, I was like, oh my gosh, patriarchy everywhere, you know? And I was like, why don't they change this language? This is so male-dominated, male-centric, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, like, I, so I had I took a lot of issue with, with the, the big book in my early days. And thankfully, I have people in my, in my herd who are like, yep, hang tight with it. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's, yes, that's irksome. Like, nobody was trying to kind of talk me out of my opinion, which I, I appreciated very much. And... The place that I have come to with the language of the big book is, sure, like, would I like it to be different? Yeah. Um, But being on the phone and being on these Zoom meetings with one of our friends who has 50 years of sobriety, that's the exact same language that she read. When, when we get onto these meetings and people are like, oh, yeah, that's page 164. Oh, yeah, that's page 473. Like, it's... It's that language, because it hasn't changed, has allowed people to memorize and you and it's a code. You can be like, oh, you know, pages 86 to 89. I don't even know if I'm getting these right. But like people are like, oh, yeah, I know exactly which passage you're talking about. And if the big book were regularly going through continuous improvement. Yeah. That you you lose some of that thread that binds generations yeah. of recovering alcoholics together, and so it is something that I'm like I'm not gonna die on this hill. Like you know that I'm okay with it because the the upside of the strength of the community mm-hmm. in being able to have the language the way it is. Very little alteration over the additions. Mm-hmm. Not a let's look at this every single year and try to make it better, you know, whatever. 
there there is something that holds us together as a community in that and I'm okay with it. Yeah, and that's important to be okay with it because it's been my experience that my inner critic, at least early on in the program, my inner critic was taking a look at the steps and saying, oh, no, they've got God up there. What are they going to try and, you know, they're going to sho- <laughs> shove all these different mm-hmm. religious uh, fanaticisms at me. And But I was just sick enough and desperate enough that I said, well, okay, I guess I'll just put up with them. And, of course, they, they, they never materialized. That was just my irrational thinking at the time. But the fact that that you were willing to let the book be the book. I think the importance of the first 164 pages not changing, and there have been slight changes to them over the years, but uh, yeah. is that people can come into the program at any time, and the guy with one week is reading the same text as the guy with 40 years. And so everybody at least is in the same yeah. prayer book, so to speak. They're singing the yeah. same hymns. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to make too too close of a connection there. But, you know, to me, I think a lot of the people, I sponsor some guys who are just um, big book, uh, I don't want to even say fanatics, but they are fanatics. They're fans of the big book. And so they are able to go into a meeting and back almost anything they say up with some quote from the big book. And I think it's good for there to be people like that out there. So your sponsor got you started on the steps. What concerns did you express to her early on that she had to allay before you could move forward? Okay, let me think. Um, Okay, in step one, um, writing down powerlessness over alcohol, unmanageability, um, I, I was having a hard time coming up with stories to like write, to write down. And... And so I was like, I don't have that, I don't have that many, you know, like, to be honest with you, I was not sold that I was an alcoholic. And so, you know, those first few steps for somebody that's like, well, you know, I was a high bottom and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And maybe it's not such a big deal because I didn't have a DUI and I didn't lose a job and I didn't lose relationships and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It took me a while to like settle in and I still you know almost two years in I'm still like oh I think of another story and I'm like oh shit yeah okay well <laughs> that would go in my step right, one right, right. so they, they they came to me over time in terms of kind of writing down kind of like what my higher power like the image of my higher power growing up in a in a more conservative faith tradition mm-hmm. even though that's not the brand of faith that I practice today it still was very hard for me to, to come up with, a like, I felt like I was creating God in my own image mm-hmm. and that that was, uh, you know, something that I shouldn't be doing. And so my sponsor kind of helped talk me through that in a way that I could kind of like access that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we got to step four, um, you know, I was still, you know, struggling with depression. You know, I started step four in January 1st of last year. And so in that, you know, couple of months up to that, I I had had some really difficult depression, depression times, you know, we stepped into step four very carefully. And, um, she was, and she reminded me several times, like, this is not about you finding ways to kick the shit out of yourself. You know, and so I think that having her by my side and knowing me well enough to say, like, I think I know where you might get hung up here and I'm here to walk you through it was just like invaluable. Yeah, that's really wonderful. That to me is the value of a sponsor, you know, from a technical and instructive point of view is certainly important. But somebody to just kind of have your back and be there for you emotionally to support the work that has to be done. And, you know, it's interesting about this. I don't know that I've interviewed anybody who was still in the midst of working the first 12 steps. And I'm glad I did interview you because there are a lot of people I've known over the years who you say, how long have you been sober? They say three or four years or something like that. And then you say, and then you hear them share something and it becomes real clear that they never did a fourth step. Mm. 
and they're struggling with their program and struggling with their program. The point I wanted to make was, I don't think there's anything wrong with struggling and time takes time. And when it comes to getting the work done, we, we find our way to get the work done. But the good thing about a sponsor is a sponsor is somebody to be not only uh, accountable to, but somebody who can keep you on the right track and say, okay, so these issues are coming up over and over again. Mm -hmm. Isn't it about time you work on step number blank? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It took me 10 months to do step four. And I know that there are pros and cons to that approach of just taking it really long and thinking every single thing through your whole life and being super detailed about it. But for me, taking that long and you know it's it's hard and so I had to kind of pace myself and my sponsor would be like have you done any step four this week and I'd be like mm, uh, uh, uh. and so we would set weekly goals you know like all right I'm going to do 15 lines you know and that kind of helped me just like a just like a coach would at the gym you know that kind of helped me to like do my exercises just a few a week you don't have to spend a ton of time on it so it being able to like look at my entire life and all of the hurts and all the resentments that I held kind of all at once and doing that step five, you know, my step five was 13 hour day. Must have been incredibly healing. Yep. So incredible. Mm -hmm. And people need to hear that, that it can have that kind of impact. Mm -hmm. No matter where you are within the steps, I believe that there's power to be held in each one of those steps to change our lives, if for nothing more than just to move on to the next step. What I've noticed about people I've been close to in the program, including those I've sponsored, is that there's nothing like getting ready or making the commitment to be a sponsor that keeps people on their step game, probably better than anything else, because it's hard to sponsor somebody and have something to say to them about something that you're not doing yourself, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I predict when you're ready to become a sponsor and you've done the work necessary to bring yourself to that point, that you're going to be a great sponsor. Thank you, Howard. I've had a chance to get to know you and you've got really terrific empathy. You seek to understand while you're in the process of accepting. And I think that that's something that's very difficult for most of us to do. But it sounds like you're doing that. And I really appreciate the fact that you've taken all this time to talk to me and um, I think there will be people who listen to this who will find it refreshing to know that no matter where they are in their program, they can take heart uh, with some of the things that you said. And, and I will never stop encouraging more meetings. And I say that to everybody I know, more meetings. You do. Yep. Life's going bad. More meetings. Life's not going so well. More meetings. Life is going great. Even then, more meetings. Yep. Because if people don't hear about the successes, they're just going to assume that AA is for people whose asses are falling off. You know, we heard that a lot. Yep. And I, I love that you are a reminder of the, the discipline. It is, it's like going to the mm -hmm. gym, right? It's just kind of like, yeah, you can mm -hmm. be in really good shape. And in order to stay that way, you still got to go to the gym. <laughs> you, yeah. you still got to keep working out. And I, you are very good about like, saying like, yeah, consistency, you know, is key. And I would rather err on the side of saying too much than saying too little, because sometimes you go to a meeting, whether it's online or in person, and the assumption I think we all naturally make is that person's doing okay. And then you hear them share about how their entire world's falling apart. Mm -hmm. And to me, it brings to mind the fact that I can't know until I engage with them by staying after the meeting or getting their phone number and calling. I can't assume that I know what's going on in their minds until they tell me. Yeah. And so that's one of the greatest gifts of sponsorship, I think, is somebody opening up their mind to another person with the idea of both people benefiting from it. So anyway, uh, we've, we've talked uh, quite a while, but I want to thank you so much for doing this interview tonight, Shaman. And uh, I'm looking forward to going to the meeting tomorrow. Are you going to be there? I will. Yep. Yeah, that's a great meeting. I'm the timer. Really got... Oh, yeah, you I'm are the, the timer. timer. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I got to go. Yeah. I, I, I like the idea of the time, the timer sign that says, we love you. Please wrap up in the next one minute. I think that's terrific for yeah. Zoom. Yeah. Absolutely. The little sign is... 
It's less intrusive. It's less intrusive. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, but thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, Howard. This has just been lovely, and I so appreciate you uh, for doing this act of service. This is just so helpful to all of us, and so thank you so much. You bet. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Shaman M., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, will you please share it with others? This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. If you want to contact me directly with any comments, questions, or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all General Service Office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.